AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Corn ethanol is the transportation fuel solution available to combat climate change today. Learn more about the climate benefits of corn ethanol at ncga.com. If you drive a vehicle, you're probably a customer. If you've used a bottle of hand sanitizer in the last year, you might have used one of the industry's finished products. The sector has fingerprints on your last burger and fries in more ways than one. We're talking about biofuels. You're probably most familiar with ethanol and biodiesel made from corn and soybeans. The American consumer is familiar. They use a blend of 10% ethanol on 90% of trips to the pump, but for some people, 10% just doesn't cut it. Some in the biofuels industry think 15, 30, heck 85% ethanol would be the way to go. And while they're at it, why not put a little more biodiesel in the fuel supply too? The effort to grow the biofuels business in the United States has been going on for quite a while, and it shows no signs of slowing up as consumers look to lighten their carbon footprint. Yet plenty of questions remain. Will corn-based ethanol continue to dominate the renewable fuel supply? How would a growth in electric vehicles impact the landscape? And who will carry the load on Capitol Hill? To understand where the industry wants to go, it's helpful to understand where it's been. I'm Spencer Chase. And I'm Ben Nully. We'll talk about the history of this industry and more on this first episode of our deep dive on biofuels, Running on E. One of the questions Ben and I asked many of the people we spoke to for this podcast was a simple one. When was the first time you remember hearing about biofuels? Were they customers at a gas station looking for a cheaper price? Were they a member of Congress being lobbied by a group of constituents? Or maybe they were like Tom Bias, and they were trying to figure out what in the heck they were supposed to do with all this corn. What a lot of people were looking to do and this would be under the Carter administration, was how we utilize uh, the tremendous oversupply of corn uh, to the benefit of the nation and, and going back and, and taking a look at um, uh, alcohol fuels production. This was in the 1970s, when Bias was farming in his native Indiana, as well as working for Senator Birch Bayh. He would later go on to work for Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, as well as the National Farmers Union and Growth Energy, but we'll talk more about that later. From a farmer's point of view, the concept was relatively simple. They had corn. Corn could be turned into ethanol. Ethanol could be used as fuel. But translating corn kernels into miles per gallon wasn't going to be a quick process, or an easy one. Let's talk about the science at play here. Even though most of the economic growth of ethanol has happened in the last 20 years, the concept has been around a lot longer than that. In fact, Henry Ford had ethanol in mind for propelling some of his first Model Ts. But advancing the fuel and making it commercially viable has taken some time. At its core, ethanol is alcohol. The most common form of it on the market today is made by fermenting the starches and sugars in corn but it can be made with a variety of feedstocks, including sugarcane, sugar beets, grasses, sorghum, barley, all kinds of stuff. Companies don't just throw ethanol in their gasoline for the heck of it. It's used as an oxygenate or octane enhancer, 
and that's where some policy changes came in. Bob Deneen started as an ethanol industry lobbyist with the Renewable Fuels Association in the 1980s. The ethanol industry's primary policy objective at the time, protecting an industry tax credit. But he remembers the 1990s as the decade that shaped some of the foundations for ethanol policy on the books today, including the renewable fuel standard. The tax policy was what really got the ethanol industry on its feet and it provided marketers an opportunity to sell ethanol as an octane component or even as a gasoline extender somewhat competitive because in those days ethanol was more expensive than gasoline. With the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, uh, what you had was for the very first time ethanol being used uh, for environmental policy goals. Uh, to reduce carbon monoxide, uh, to uh, reduce ozone. And that was a transformational change, really. Uh, Then later in the 90s, you had the onslaught of MTBE, uh, which really set the predicate for the renewable fuel standard as refiners looked to move away from the oxygen requirement, which they believed was driving MTBE use to a renewable fuel standard Uh, that would allow them to continue to offer high-octane fuels without having to rely upon MTBE. Let's talk about that four-letter word he said quite a bit there, MTBE, short for methyl tertiary butyl ether. There isn't a lot of new information on MTBE these days, mainly because the oil industry has mostly switched to ethanol for MTBE's former primary use as an octane enhancer. MTBE became a threat to drinking water supplies, and oil companies had to pivot and find another way to safely boost octane levels. In 2005, 6, and 7, we had the oil companies actually coming to us, wanting the RFS, cooperating with them. Well, sadly, three or four years later, they were against everything we were trying to do. But we had utmost cooperation with the American petroleum industry at that particular time. And, uh, and it was because they had to get out from under the oxygenate standard. That's Senator Chuck Grassley. He's been a member of the United States Senate since 1980, and during that time has emerged as one of the most vocal champions of ethanol on Capitol Hill. Let's stop for a second. You might have noticed that so far, basically all I've talked about was ethanol. That's not an accident. It's a little reflective of some of the battles Joe Job had to fight early in his career with the National Biodiesel Board. In those early days, uh, you know, when I would talk to people about biodiesel, if they had any inkling about what biodiesel was at all, they would say, oh, yeah, that's that corn fuel. And, um, you know, then I'd have to you know, start over and explain it to them. In fact, what really helped the industry build awareness was some help from an unconventional source. One of the breakthroughs that that, uh, really caused biodiesel to start getting more name recognition and understanding was when Willie started started to promote it. Willie, in this case, is country music singer Willie Nelson. But when he found out about it, He's like, wow, this makes so much sense in the world. You know, he began to promote it. He invited me to come to Farm Aid and talk to him and Neil Young and Steve Earle and everybody that was that was there was just like, wow, this is cool. Never heard of it before. You know, I mean, you, we can 
run our buses on it. Yeah. So it was a it was a novelty thing that got a lot of attention because you know Willie Nelson's running his bus on biodiesel and promoting it as an ad fuel and powered the generators at Farm Aid from then on. Got a lot of coverage and after that. People would say, "Well, Joe, what do you do for a living?" And I tell them, "It's a biodiesel. That's that Willie Nelson." Yeah, that's it. Ethanol had MTBE, biomass-based diesel had Willie Nelson, but there was also a desire to increase domestic energy production and lessen the reliance on foreign sources of oil. So off the industry went to Capitol Hill, and to hear a bipartisan pair of Senate champions put it, they really weren't in for much of a fight. North Dakota Democrat Byron Dorgan was involved in drafting the language that would go on to become the first renewable fuel standard in 2005. Well, from time to time, you'd see somebody raise their eyebrows and, and think, are you dreaming? But, but the fact is, uh, it was also the case that we found uh, bipartisan support. Jim Talent, a Republican from Missouri, myself, Tim Johnson, Democrats from the Dakotas, uh, doing this together, coming out in 2005 of the Senate Energy Committee on a bipartisan basis, that's a big deal. And Grassley says pitching for support early on wasn't all that difficult. I can't remember problems of getting agricultural interest people in ethanol, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, I don't even know that we were fighting the oil companies like we have been in the last 15 or 20 years. By the time the decade wrapped up, two separate energy bills would go on to provide the framework for the biofuels policy most familiar to the marketplace today the Renewable Fuel Standard. Ben will talk a little later about what happened once the legislation was signed into law, but let's talk about what led up to that point. This was an effort to create a viable energy policy almost out of thin air. It wasn't going to be easy, but like we heard before, the biofuels industry had the oil industry's troubles on their side. What made it work is that they, they had something that they needed as well. They needed to, to have an off-ramp for MPBE. Without that, no, they, they had no interest in, in moving forward uh, with a renewable fuel standard for sure. The biofuels industry was also learning as it grew. Different production styles made the industry more efficient. Better crop yields gave it more feedstock to work with. But there were also environmental concerns at play that forced the industry to adapt as it lobbied for policy changes. John Doggett is the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, but when the industry was working on Capitol Hill to secure the RFS, he was based in an NCGA's Washington office and in the thick of the lobbying process. The first energy bill, we worked with the oil industry. Second energy bill, we worked with the environmental community. Um, each had different things that they wanted. The environmental community wanted a life cycle analysis. They didn't want, uh, you know, there was there were all these concerns that we were going to plow up the entire country and growing corn in the middle of Yellowstone Park. Full disclosure, NCGA is the sponsor of this podcast. We'll talk more about a life cycle analysis in a future episode, but here's the basics. Just because ethanol might reduce emissions at the tailpipe, environmentalists wanted to make sure its total emissions were tracked on a more comprehensive basis. By the time the tractor plants the seed, a combine harvests it, and a semi hauls it to an ethanol plant, there's emissions from three different vehicles to keep in mind. Then, a facility has to process the corn and turn it into ethanol. And after all of that, it still needs to find its way to a gas tank. It's a long, complicated process with plenty of stops along the way. 
There's also the matter of livestock production. The various cows, pigs, and poultry of the U.S. eat corn, and a lot of it. Creating a separate demand driver for a major input caused some concern. Which brings us to distiller's grains. Ethanol production doesn't need the entire corn kernel, so the leftovers are dried and converted into a protein-rich feed for animals. Or, according to former Congressman Colin Peterson, they're also of interest to the occasional Speaker of the House. You know, the biggest supporter of ethanol was Nancy Pelosi. And I think she still is. You know, and that goes back to when I took her to Farm Fest in Minnesota in Redwood Falls. And, I, and during that visit, I took her to the ethanol plants in Benson, Minnesota. You know, and uh, I remember showing her the pile of uh, DDGs. You know, and she said, well, what's that? And I said, well, that's, you know, DD, these are leftover, what's left over after we take the ethanol out of the, out of the uh, process. And she said, well, what do you use that? I said, well, we use it for cattle feed or, you know. She said, really? Can you eat it? I said, yeah. So she went over and took some and ate it. <laughs> Deneen says the biofuels industry also had the leader of the free world on its side. George Bush, President George Bush, understood because he was a a Texas oil guy himself. He understood what ethanol might mean to a refiner. He understood that this was a clean octane source. He understood that it would allow the barrel of oil to go that much further. And he absolutely understood that consumers wanted lower cost alternatives to oil. And, you know, so he was tremendously important to the success of both the 05 and the 07 bills without his leadership, without his support, uh, it, it would not have happened. Bush even went as far as to use his 2007 State of the Union address to call for the passage of legislation that would require 35 billion gallons of annual renewable fuel production by 2017. A month later, a junior senator from Illinois named Barack Obama would back ethanol in a speech announcing his candidacy for president. Of course, Obama would go on to win the presidency in 2008, giving the biofuel sector two consecutive presidents who backed their fuel. And Doggett says they were just hoping to keep up with the excitement. I remember when Bob Deneen and I walked out of the um, Capitol building after the final vote in the Senate. And Bob looked at me and said, boy, I hope we can produce 5 billion gallons of ethanol. And I said, boy, Bob, I think you can, but man, it's, we're going to have to whip and ride here. So it wasn't a year later, all of a sudden we're looking around all these, these farmer owned ethanol plants that got steel in the ground. It wasn't two years later, the same two leaders had a similar conversation after they watched President Bush sign the 2007 energy bill. And it was a refinement of everything else we had done. And really, I, I think it was, it was great because we, we saw we could do all of these things and other industries saw they could do things. And then we got into this thing of, of uh, aspirational of getting to 32 billion gallons of renewable fuels in the American America's fuel supply by, by 2023 or four. We stepped forward and, and very quickly um, brought the production forward. And I remember when Bob Deneen and I again walked out of the energy department after George W. Bush signed the bill. And I turned to Bob and I said, Bob, I, man, that's a lot of corn for us to produce. They had done it. The industry had secured legislation mandating the use of biofuels in the American fuel supply. But passing a bill is one thing. Getting it implemented is a whole different animal. Or, as Job puts it, 
We haven't even touched all of the juicy stuff yet. We'll be back right after this. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Ethanol as a transportation fuel is uniquely positioned to immediately combat climate change and clear the air we all breathe. Affordable, readily available, corn-based ethanol provides consumers with a renewable low-carbon solution today and for decades to come. Learn more about the ethanol policies and priorities of NCGA at ncga.com. The first time I learned about ethanol and biodiesel was sitting in a crop science class in high school. But it wasn't really until I moved to Iowa in 2015, the nation's top ethanol and biodiesel producing state, that I really became familiarized with the products. And let me tell you, Iowans and most Iowa farmers love their biofuels because they're corn and soybean based. Long story short, some farmers sell their corn to ethanol plants or soybeans to biodiesel plants. Then when plants produce more biofuels, it means more demand for corn or soybeans, in turn increasing cash prices. Spencer talked about the origins on how we got here, but it wasn't until President George W. Bush signed the Energy Policy Act of 2005 into law, which included the renewable fuel standard, that the biofuels industry really took off. RFA's Deneen, who fought so hard to get this bill passed, didn't even make it to the bill signing. The first bill that got passed was signed in uh, Albuquerque uh, because the, the chairman and the ranking member of the Senate Energy Committee that had largely gotten the, the whole energy bill put together and, and passed were both from New Mexico. And so President Bush said, we'll, we'll do it out in Albuquerque. Well, it's in August. I'm always with my family on the on an island on Lake Winnipesaukee, surrounded by the Green Mountains and the beautiful Lake Winnipesaukee water. And, you know, I would have had to take three days out of that vacation. And so no, I, I wasn't going to sacrifice that as much as I wanted to be there for that bill signing. Uh, I stayed on the lake and at the appointed hour, I canoed out into the lake and me and the loons uh, celebrated uh, loudly, but alone. At that time, RFS-1 required 4 billion gallons of renewable fuel consumption in 2006, ascending to 7.5 billion gallons in 2012 to be blended into the nation's fuel supply. The RFS is described by the Environmental Protection Agency, the department that has jurisdiction over it, as a national policy requiring a certain volume of renewable fuel to replace or reduce the quantity of petroleum-based transportation fuel, heating oil, or jet fuel. There are four renewable fuel categories, biomass-based diesel, cellulosic biofuel, advanced biofuel, and total renewable fuel. While the RFS has helped biodiesel, NBB's Rehagen says one thing that's propelled the industry to where it is today is the biodiesel tax credit that was also signed into law in 2005. It gives biodiesel producers a dollar per gallon tax credit, which can be deducted from their overall tax liability, for the production of pure biodiesel or renewable diesel that meets the American Society for Test Material Standards. That biodiesel tax credit really was the, you know, the rocket fuel for, for our industry back in 2005, 2006, all the way up through you know, 2010. It continues to be a driver today. It makes all of the numbers work out. It makes uh, folks all the way up and down the supply chain feel like they can embrace this fuel because they know that there's going to be some opportunities there for them as well. Um, and so, but, but for me, primarily, it really was the difference maker in getting our 
production capacity up from a few hundred million gallons a year to where we're at now with nearly 3 billion gallons of domestic capacity. In 2007, the Energy Independence and Security Act was signed into law and made further expansions to the RFS. These expansions include boosting the long-term goals to 36 billion gallons of renewable fuel, extending yearly volume requirements out to 2022, and included waiver authorities. All right, now we're cruising. RFS 1 and RFS 2 have passed. So now what? Deneen says in the beginning, some oil companies were willing to work with them. The day after the 07 bill was passed, uh, I was visited by one of the major oil companies. I guess I can say who at the time. Shell. Shell came in and said, okay, uh, we fought you, we lost. Uh, We want to be able to make this work. And so, you know, they then engaged in a constructive conversation about how ethanol and biodiesel might be able to work for them. And and they, they, you know, they became one of the the big blenders, obviously. The the business guys generally got it. And, uh, you know, the market grew even faster than the requirements required. But over the years, the industries drifted apart. The critical issue that we've had with the RFS since the beginning is this issue of the ethanol blend wall. That's Patrick Kelly, Senior Policy Advisor for the American Petroleum Institute. When the uh, first 2005 Act was passed and then later revised in 2007, the projections for gasoline demand at that time was much higher than what actually played out in in reality. You know, we are using about 21% less gasoline in this year, 2021, than what had was originally projected back in 2007. Based on those earlier projections, the amount of ethanol required by the RFS, 15 billion gallons, would have comfortably fit within that gasoline pool at a limit of, you know, below the 10% limit. But because of fuel economy improvements and for various other reasons, gasoline demand has been, you know, flatlined and is projected to, to fall into the future. And so you're talking about a smaller pool of gasoline to fit more gallons of biofuels. And so you inherently need to cross this 10% limit. And it was really that that what, what caused API to switch from being in support of the RFS to you know, seeking to reform the program. According to EPA, oil refiners have two options to comply with the RFS. One, they must blend an EPA-specified renewable volume obligation, or RVO, into the transportation fuel supply, or obtain credits called Renewable Identification Numbers, or RINs. And let me tell you, RINs are confusing. Just take it from former House Agriculture Committee Chair Colin Peterson. You know, I'm a CPA, and I try to understand uh, economics and try to understand derivatives, for example. There's no way in hell I can understand this RIN market. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense to me. According to the Congressional Research Service, the RIN life cycle can be described in three steps. One. A RIN is attached to a gallon of qualifying renewable fuel once the fuel is produced. Two, the RIN is separated once the renewable fuel is blended with gasoline or diesel fuel. And three, the separated RIN may be submitted for compliance, traded, or banked for future use. We'll hear more from Peterson later in this series. RVOs are set each year, and Grassley notes the problems didn't start to arise until former President Barack Obama's administration paused issuing the annual RVOs for 2014, 2015, and 2016. Deneen says it absolutely 
had an impact on the development of the industry. But far less so for the corn ethanol industry as for the cellulosic ethanol industry, because the cellulose was just getting started. Uh, the requirements for cellulosic ethanol and, and other advanced biofuels was, was just becoming more meaningful. And, you know, it was difficult to walk into a bank looking to get financing for a new technology in a government-driven market to begin with. But now when EPA has taken the, the rug out from underneath that program, uh, you know, banks are looking at you pretty squirrely-eyed and saying, eh, maybe not. So the, the real impact and the legacy of those three years really was to deal a significant blow to the development of cellulose and other advanced biofuels. RFA's current president and CEO, Jeff Cooper, argues EPA illegally reduced blending requirements for conventional renewable fuels from 2014 to 2016 in their annual rulemaking. Uh, really based on the argument that the marketplace just wasn't ready for those volumes, uh, even though those volumes of, of renewable fuel were available. Uh, and that sort of defeats uh, the, the, the market forcing purpose of the RFS. Uh, so RFA and a number of other groups took EPA to court and in 2017, the D.C. Circuit Court ruled that EPA had acted unlawfully uh, in waiving those volumes, and they ordered EPA to restore at least 500 million gallons of that missing volume. Uh, and four years later, after that court decision, we are still waiting for EPA to restore that 500 million gallons as ordered by the court uh, that was illegally waived from the 2016 RVL. Implementation of the RFS has sparked many court cases over the years by oil, biofuel, and environmentalists. But Obama's EPA wasn't the only one to cause headaches for the ethanol and biodiesel industries. Former President Donald Trump's administration did too, especially with granting small refinery exemptions. The most recent court case is before the Supreme Court, which focuses on the legality of extending small refinery exemptions for oil refiners. A small refinery may be granted a temporary exemption from its annual RVO if it can demonstrate that compliance would cause it to suffer disproportionate economic hardship. Under Obama, EPA granted 24 SREs in 2011, 23 in 2012, and only in the single digits between 2013 and 2015. It wasn't until Scott Pruitt, a former Oklahoma Attorney General, became Trump's EPA Administrator that the number of SREs increased to 35 in 2017 and 32 in 2018. Kathy Berggren, Director of Public Policy and Renewable Fuels at the National Corn Growers Association, said she'd always known about small refinery exemptions, but it wasn't quite apparent until that year what EPA had been doing. You know, they had sort of started being pretty generous with those exemptions and, and incur, you know, I think it seems like in some ways encouraging people to apply for those, but there was a, a kind of a black box going on and it wasn't really until, you know, I think there were some, some leaks and things started to be reported in the media um, about the, you know, increase in these exemptions that I think it really kind of came to light. I think, you know, there had always been a handful of them, um, but and then I think we started hearing a little bit like, oh, all of these, you know, refineries are applying for these exemptions and that's never really happened before. But then, you know, until it was really sort of became reported that I, I don't think there, you know, it was 
kind of interesting how that went down that, you know, as, as we learned, there was not, not a lot of transparency in, in that process. So until it was actually happening, it was hard to know that it was happening. <laughs> Former Senator Dorgan of North Dakota says SREs have been nothing but a disaster for the biofuels industry. It's a pretty big setback in terms of gallons, in terms of gallons that should have been or could have been produced. And plus, you know, we had a couple of people over at the EPA running the EPA who uh, it was, you know, they were disastrous for our industry. And, uh, and the Trump administration, despite the fact that uh, the president uh, had committed to supporting renewable fuels. Uh, I mean, I, in fact, I spoke at the same conference he did in Iowa before he became president. Uh, and I was there. I, he, he made a commitment, but that commitment uh, w- was not very solid. Uh, the, what they did on SREs is, is just a profound embarrassment. Uh, should never have been done, should never have been considered, and yet it caused great damage to the biodiesel industry. But Jeff Moody, Vice President of Government Relations for the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, says the RFS clearly states small refinery exemptions may be granted under certain conditions. And while API decided to stay out of the SRE fight, AFPM went a different direction. So AFPM represents more than 90% of the refining industry. So we you know, count in our membership a lot of the small refineries that uh, API doesn't represent, for instance. So you know, as the kind of the broader in, refining industry association, uh, yeah, we took we took a little bit of a different view uh, than they did. Uh, really, our, our point of view though is we don't get into individual SREs, and so it's been a misnomer. You know, we we don't advocate for against specific refineries. Those are based on confidential business information, uh, things in the applications that aren't known to us. So, you know, our our position on SREs is it, it, you know it's been an important tool that Congress built right into the statute where uh, small refineries can apply at any time uh, to, to receive these things uh, based on a showing of disproportionate economic harm. So um, if a refinery shows that, they're entitled to get the, the, the exemption. Um, so, you know, our, our position has been, you know, EPA and DOE are responsible for grading those, those applications. Um, and the statute is pretty clear that, you know, if they, if they find it's disproportionate, they should grant them. I'd note that even going back to 2010, DOE had a, a long study uh, showing that there that they did expect small refineries to see disproportionate harm, um, especially as the as rent prices started to go up and the program got more stringent. There, those predictions came true. The Supreme Court case on SREs could have huge impacts on the industry. The case is an appeal of a ruling issued in January 2020 by the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which struck down three SREs. In its decision. The Tenth Circuit ruled SREs needed to be continuous and could not be issued again once the waivers first lapsed. It also created a new rationale for the EPA to follow in considering future waivers. Biofuel groups and corn growers argue the Tenth Circuit ruling should be upheld. Some refiners argue the ruling is at odds with the law, stating that small refineries may at any time apply for SREs. President Joe Biden's EPA will likely not take action on 2019 and 2020 pending SRE requests until the court ruling this summer. But while biofuel advocates may not worry about his administration granting as many small refinery exemptions, they do have to worry about his strong embrace of electric vehicles and how his EPA will handle RFS volumes post-2022. According to the RFS, after 2022, the EPA administrator will determine all annual renewable volumes. This is based on a review of the program during years specified in the RFS statute. 
The review analysis will look at the relationship between the production and use of renewable fuels and the environmental benefits, the role that renewable fuels have played on increasing the energy security of the United States, and the future of commercial-scale production of advanced biofuels like cellulosic biofuel and biomass-based diesel. Brooke Coleman is Executive Director of the Advanced Biofuels Business Council. The group represents worldwide leaders in the effort to develop and commercialize next-generation advanced biofuels and bio-based products. Coleman takes us deeper into what exactly could happen post-2022. As you know, the prescriptive volumetric targets end in 2022 that Congress set forth back in 2007. EPA has the authority to just keep going. Um, the volumetric targets end in 2022, but the program doesn't. And so EPA essentially has the authority to say, okay, we've gotten to 20 of 36 billion gallons by 2022, which is pretty good under the circumstances. Where are we going to go from here? That deliberation is just starting. Hopefully they do the RVOs quickly. Hopefully they prioritize clearing the cellulosic biofuel logjam quickly. That will unleash American innovation immediately. But that process on the set side is just starting. And so hopefully as we sort of come to the end of this year, we'll hopefully have a better sense of uh, to the degree to which EPA is caught up on the RFS and, and then have at least a general idea of where they want to go in the out years. Um, they could set a multi-year set, uh, do a multi-year calendar volumetrically. They could drop cellulosic waiver credits, which are a get out of jail free card for the oil industry. Um, there are six, seven, eight things that they could do within existing authority to, to unleash the innovation potential of renewable fuels. And we're hoping to convince them to do that. Brooke, are you concerned about post-2022? Always. The RFS is a political lightning rod. Those who criticize it often fail to realize that it's controversial because of its disruptive success. Um, the oil industry tends not to worry about things that don't affect them. They tend to focus on things that are highly disruptive. API prioritized, the American Petroleum Institute prioritized the RFS five years in a row as their number one legislative concern. They didn't do that because it's a useless policy. And so it will be a, a place where biofuels and oil tangle. And if you believe this administration, they're look, looking forward to it, but we'll, we'll see. Well, we hope you got a better understanding of how the RFS works, ongoing biofuel industry challenges, and its future. Be watching for next week's episode as we look into the low carbon fuel standard and what potential that could bring for the industry. You're probably like, but wait a minute, we just learned about this RFS thing. Trust me, it's still in the picture. AgriPulse Steep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. For Spencer Chase, I'm Ben Mellon.